one of these days I'm going to buy me a stand-up bass and I'm going to learn to play the theme song to the steam room. It's just so catchy. And we welcome you to uh, episode four of season two of the steam room. Ernie Johnson and Charles Barkley. Man alive, Chuckster. What a show we've got in store today. I am pumped today. Number one, I love me some Kyle Corver, but let me tell you something. Special, special, special guest, the great Tony Dungy. Hey, you know what, Ernie? He's kind of like you. No matter where I'm at, they say, man, that Ernie Jones seemed like the nicest guy in the world. And they said the same thing about Coach Dungy. Tony Dungy's on another level, and, and we will look uh, forward to talking to him here in a few minutes and Kyle Corver a bit later. Uh, you've seen him on the arena with Kerry Champion. He's a deep thinker, uh, got a lot of good things to say. So we look forward to getting into that with him. Uh, meantime, uh, as we start every steam room, first of all... First of all, you know you have a lot of money when you get hunting nut Cheerios. I've had the regular Cheerios. First of all, you know anybody ride a motorcycle who makes millions of dollars is an idiot. First of all, zero plus zero is zero. I want to apologize to Ernie Johnson, Shaquille O'Neal, and Kenny the Jet Smith. The other night, I got a little flustered and said something really, really stupid about the vaccine. And I want to expand. Number one, I do think NBA players should get the vaccine. We don't know how this COVID vaccine is going to affect their health down the line. So that's the point I was trying to portray. Uh, and I made it seem like just because they pay a lot of taxes, they should jump to the front of the line. And I just want to apologize to you guys and America. I didn't because I came off as elitist. But like I say, I do want these guys to get the vaccine because I want them to be safe in the future, because we have no idea. We have zero idea what this stuff is going to do to their body down the line. So, But I was wrong for saying it like I said it, so I apologize. Uh, to you three guys, my TNT family, but mainly to the people out there, I was wrong. Apology accepted, and I know that that uh, created quite a bit of conversation, but uh, thank you for Clearing that up because, yeah, I think, you know, the way you, the way you said it kind of got the uh, dander up on a lot of folks. Let's move on. And apology accepted on, on my end. I, I, I cannot pull the rest of the listening and viewing public, but. Uh, uh, I'm only worried about you, Ernie. I'm not worried about Dumb and Dumber we work with. I just wanted your <laughs> approval. We're good. Now, next week, you're going to apologize for calling them Dumb and Dumber. Okay, go ahead. Well, you have to figure out which one is Dumb and which one is Dumber. Uh, okay, <laughs> I want to give a shout out to Philip Rivers. Uh, he's from Alabama. He announced his retirement. Now he's going to become a high school football coach. He had an amazing career. And I just want to give a shout out to him for, man, watching him compete for all these years has been fun. It's been exciting. I always pull for my Alabama brethren, uh, even though he went to NC State. I know he's from, I don't know how he got away from Alabama and Auburn in the first place. And uh, I wish him nothing but the best. I think he got nine kids. That's amazing. Nine kids. Wow. Uh, but I know he's a really, really uh, religious guy. He loves his family. And uh, he wants to go and mentor young men. So I wish him nothing but a great future. But I just want to acknowledge what an amazing, great career he had. And, you know, people are going to debate whether he's a Hall of Famer or not. And uh, I think he is a Hall of Famer because he got some amazing, uh, he had a, just an amazing career. So go right off into the sunset, Mr. Rivers, and good luck coaching high school football. It's a great point. And I think just think about the domino effect that's going to have because 
Philip Rivers pouring into the lives of kids at that age. Yes. Who will someday look back and say, man, when I had Philip Rivers as my coach, and then that ripple effect also takes place. So yeah, riding off into the sunset is one thing where you're going to ride off and nobody's ever going to hear from you again. But when you close the book on the playing career and now all that stuff you learn, all of those, you know, all those stories you can share, uh, it's going to impact generations of, of kids. So that's, that's awesome. Any other, first of all, can I ask you a question? You can ask me a question, Mr. Johnson. What's the inauguration yesterday? Uh, I did. Uh, I felt joy and sadness, uh, to be honest with you. I thought it was uh, a beautiful ceremony. And obviously, uh, with uh, Kamala Harris being the vice president, that was amazing uh, that we have a woman vice president. Uh, it was great. But I was also, I felt a sadness that we needed all that security. The people couldn't be there. You know, every uh, inauguration I've watched, whether it was a Republican or a Democrat, it's been amazing all the people who were there to celebrate. And to see how empty the streets was, I just felt sadness because this is by far and away, you know, with all the issues and problems we got, this is by far and away the greatest place in the world. I've been all over the world. Ain't nothing like the United States of America. Do we have problems? Yes, we have problems. But to have that amount of security and not let the people celebrate, I was sad. Uh, I was glad. I was disappointed. Uh, I was glad President Trump left him a note. Like all presidents have always left a note. But I think I read a stat. Um, that was the first time in over a hundred years that the president who left office wasn't there. And that, and that really made me sad too. It really made me mad because like when I saw president Clinton, Obama and Bush there, I was like, it's like four or five men living now know what it's like to be that man. I mean, there's a million idiots on TV talking about sports. There's a million doctors, there's a million law lawyers. Cause I think president Jimmy Carter, Obama, Clinton, Bush, Trump, and Biden. That's only six people alive just know what it's like to be the president. That's an amazing club to be in. And uh, I just thought he should have been there, whether he was bitter or mad. I, I wanna, I'm glad uh, Vice President uh, Pence went. But I just think that you got to be there because that, that, that office means something. Yeah, and you're, you're absolutely right, Chuckster. And I think – and it's – it's hard to describe exactly the feeling that it that it gives you, but when you do see past presidents from different parties, but in the same place for the same purpose, it does kind of give you a feeling of, look, I know we have our differences, but we're here to say, here's the guy, and we support you, and we're sending you on your way on this journey that very few of us know what lies ahead for you, but we all have been there and you're next in line and good luck to you. When a president can be there and is not there and chooses yeah. not to be there, that's, yeah, that's sad. It just runs against the way you're born and the way you're raised and, you know, winning and losing and that kind of thing. But I'll say this, it just, it just feels already. And, you know, I saw the, the ceremony the night before next to the Washington Monument as the 400,000 who have died of COVID were remembered in a real solemn ceremony. It was like there's a dignity that is suddenly returned to that office. 
and I was watching the other day as uh, Major Garrett is a correspondent for CBS and his, his wife is a writer and his wife has described the office of the president as the background music for the country and setting the tone for the country. And I think we, you know, we've been through four years where that, man, that music was blaring. And I'm hoping that this administration, which has just taken over, that that background noise is one of that soothes and comforts and unites. So what do you say we jump into some guests here? Special, special guest. Yeah, we'll start it off with Tony Dungy looking ahead to the uh, conference championships this weekend and much, much more with the Hall of Fame coach next. Welcome back to the Steam Room, everybody. Ernie Johnson and Charles Barkley on a two-guest show today. Yeah, but one guest is very, very special, big time. Oh, well, I'm not going to tell the second guest then that he's not very, very special, big time. <laughs> I'll let you do that in the next segment. We welcome Tony Dungy to the podcast. And, and the only ground rule we have, Coach, is that we ask uh, that when you come to the Steam Room, please keep your towel on. Okay. That works. <laughs> so so tell me about the first time you met Charles Barkley. Well, it was in the mid-80s. I was a young assistant coach for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Charles was playing. It was in uh, Indianapolis. I was up there for the combine. Charles was playing uh, against the Pacers, and he came in, same hotel we're in. He saw me, and he said, hey, don't, don't you coach for the Steelers? You got my boy Gerald Williams on the, on the team. He had gone to school with Gerald Williams as a defensive lineman from Auburn, and he proceeded to tell me. I'm not going to tell you who our quarterback was, but he proceeded to tell me he was the worst quarterback in the NFL, and how can we win a game with him being, being the quarterback? That's when I knew he had a future in TV and radio. <laughs> You recall that, Chuckster? I do remember that. Number one, football is my favorite sport. I think you know that, Ernie. Football and boxing are my two favorite sports. And I had a beautiful one-day football experience. That uh, it, It's just shameful to admit I could only take it for one day. But I think it was bad coaching. I think Coach put me on the defensive line. I, I, I don't want to be on the offensive line of defensive line because they hit too much. <laughs> I think you told me that story. Yeah, I was like 16. And I was like, yeah. I remember the last thing the coach said to me was, I'll see you tomorrow. I said, you think I'm going to do this stupid stuff tomorrow? Are you crazy? <laughs> and I quit. I, I said, Coach, football is not for me. Hey, Coach, thank you for being on, on the podcast today. You know, obviously, I, I called you. As a coach, I really need to have you on the show because we're going to get to some lighter stuff later. But what are we going to do about the lack of black coaches in the NFL? Charles, it, it is it's troubling. And we've gone through this in periods of time. It's gotten better, then it's gotten worse. I think we've got to educate our owners and general managers on what they need to look for. I, I don't think they really understand. They've got a blueprint that is very small. They don't really understand that you can come outside that blueprint and still be successful. It's disturbing when over the last three years, and this hiring cycle is not over yet, but out of the last 18 coaching hires, there's been one African-American out of 18. Uh, and people can say, well, it's all based on merit and the best people rise to the top and all that. But there's no way in the National Football League in 2020 that one out of 18 makes sense. 
But how much of a factor is that feeling, the contacts you make, the guys you've hired, the guys you've worked with, that recycling uh, phenomenon? There's some of that, but Ernie, some of it is that these owners really just don't know what they're looking for. Uh, the commissioners had me talk to people that were in the middle of their coaching search. Some people have just called me and said, hey, would you recommend somebody to me? I'm, I'm in a coaching search. And my first question to them is, what are you looking for? Tell me what you're looking for, then I can recommend somebody to you. And so many of them will say, well, I don't really know. I just want a good coach. Or I'm looking for someone to come in and straighten my quarterback around and get my quarterback squared away. And I think, well, if that's all you're trying to do, you might not get the best person. The last I look, Bill Belichick won a bunch of Super Bowls and he wasn't a quarterback specialist. And Pete Carroll has won Super Bowls and he's not a quarterback specialist. So if you're just narrowing it down to say, I just want this, I want an offensive guy who calls great plays or I want a quarterback guru you might not get the best person. Leadership, you know, is special. That That's how you win. And, and I'm sure Charles can tell you uh, the best coaches in the NBA, the best coaches in the NFL aren't necessarily the guys who have the best X's and O's, but they're the people who can bring people together and lead a team. And, and that's what you need to look for. And that can come in all shapes and sizes and all colors. And I think we, we kind of lose track of that sometimes. I mean, obviously uh, we all are creatures of the, of the moment. The, you look at what Eric Bieniemy has done the last three years as the offensive coordinator uh, with probably arguably one of the greatest offenses ever, and he just gets he just get interviews, and that's it. And that's frustrating because every year you see white coaches, like uh, no disrespect, because when you name guys, you act like you're calling about. You see, like Sean McVay had a a great offense, and he got a job. He was the hot candidate. You look at Matt Lafleur and Green Bay, like. He got a great offense. He gets a job. Now, right in our face, you got Eric Bieniemy, who's <laughs> got the best offense going in the NFL today. And, like, he can't get a sniff. But, and it's just three years in a row. Yeah, Charles, uh, the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. And it's kind of funny. We've seen this over and over again. You're right. Uh, Andy Reid has a great tree of coaches who have gone out from his, his tutelage. Doug Peterson, coach for Andy Reid. Andy Reid called the plays. Doug Peterson gets the head coaching job of the Philadelphia Eagles, and he wins a Super Bowl. Matt Nagy comes up and replaces Doug Peterson. Andy Reid called the plays. Matt Nagy goes to Chicago, gets a head job, and becomes coach of the year, his first year. Now, Eric Bieniemy's in that same spot. Andy Reid calls the plays, and all we hear is Eric Bieniemy doesn't call the plays. <laughs> Wait a minute. What, what what does that have to do with? We've seen the last two guys in that position go and be successful. Now we're saying he's doing the same thing they did, but it's not good enough. Well, when I was a young coach, the same thing happened when Andy Reid got his job 30 years ago. Mike Holmgren was the head coach. Mike Holmgren called the plays. Andy Reid got the job in Philadelphia. Didn't call the plays. Did a great job. Went to Super Bowls. Steve Mariucci then took Andy Reid's place. He didn't call the plays. Steve Mariucci got the head coaching job in Detroit. Then it came to Sherman Lewis, who happened to be African-American. And now Sherman Lewis doesn't call the plays. Mike Holmgren calls the plays. Sherman Lewis never did get a job. And you, you say, well, that was 30 years ago. And we're seeing the same thing happen again. It doesn't make sense. I had a disagreement with my financial advisor 
And I said, hey, I need you to hire black stockbrokers. He says, what do you mean? I says, I need you to hire a black stockbroker, somebody in the office to handle my money. And he says, you think I'm racist? I says, no, I don't think you're racist at all. You're like a father to me. I love you like a father. You've been in my life since I was 18. I said, but you hire people who look like you or who are friends of yours. I don't wanna just get on here and say these owners are racist or these general managers are racist, but you think they just hire people who look like them, who they're friends with? I think it's, and I don't wanna say ignorance and make it sound like it's, it's a bad thing, but I, I think they just don't know. I, you know, everyone says, when you talk about this, they say, well, nobody's gonna intentionally not hire the best person. Everybody wants to win. They're gonna hire who they think uh, can help them win. And I agree with that. I say, yes, that's true, but they don't know. They don't know what's going to help them. Many of them, we see some of these owners hiring coaches every two or three years. So obviously they don't know <laughs> what's going to be good. But I think they're victims of who the media says, of who their fans want, of what's popular at the time. Right now we are in this young offensive coordinator mentality that if we get, get a young offensive guy, we're going to be good because this person was good or that person was good. Uh, I, I just think they, they don't know. And, and many times it is kind of what you're comfortable with. I, I remember when I first got into coaching, uh, Charles, I just, I'd finished playing. I was 25 years old and I still look like a player. Coach Noel hired me on the staff and I was out on a scouting trip and a general manager who was a friend of mine that I knew from another team told me, if you want to advance in this business, you need to shave your beard because you don't look like a coach. You look like a player. So I went back and I asked Dan Rooney, who was our owner at the time. I said, you know, this guy told me that. And I certainly don't want to misrepresent the organization or anything. I don't want to be uh, present an image that you don't want. And Dan Rooney told me that may be what they do. But here we want you to be who you are. And not everybody's like that. We are comfortable with certain things, that, that certain things feel right to us because that's our background. And that's what we've got to get away from. How do you develop a coaching style? And how much of that comes from the person you are, as you just point out? My style really developed probably from my parents who were both teachers, and they felt like the best way to teach you was to, to show you how to do it and encourage you. And they were very positive and encouraging. And then uh, I ended up having the, the blessing of playing for Chuck Knoll. And that's just the way he coached. And I remember uh, I was a, a quarterback in college and came to the Steelers and switched over to defense, had never played defense in my life. And I'm out there in the middle of games making some big mistakes that are costing us and coming off the field and Coach Noel putting his arm around me and saying, what were you looking at there? What was your key? Where were your eyes? What were you thinking about? And trying to help me instead of just yelling at me, that was a dumb mistake. And how could you let the tight end beat you? And that's what helped me. And so when I became a coach, I thought back, who were the people that helped me? Who were the best coaches for me? They were the people that encouraged, that taught me how to do things and, and built me up. So that's what I wanted to do. And Ernie, I, I had several interviews for head coaching jobs where people told me that style wouldn't work. It wouldn't be effective in the NFL because players wouldn't respond to that. Chuck and I had a talk on the air the other night. We were talking about Steve Nash in his first year as a head coach of the Nets. And Chuck said, Hey, the next time he raises his voice will be the first time he's ever raised his voice, and that's not going to work. And and I said, so you feel like you got to scream to to be effective. I mean, you're a living proof, Tony, that you can take that softer side. Will that work for you and not work for other folks? 
Well, I think you have to be who you are. But it's funny Charles says that because my very first meeting with the Bucks, my team, when I got there in 96, I told him that. I said, you know what? I'm a Christian guy. I don't curse. I don't use profanity. I'm probably not going to raise my voice very much with you. Can you play well like that? If you need somebody to do that, let me know now. Raise your hand if you need somebody to yell and curse at you to be the best you can be. Nobody in the room raised their hand. So I said, well, we must be on the right track then. Now, if you change your mind and you feel like you need somebody to yell and curse at you, let me know and I'll trade you to somebody who's going to yell and curse at you. But we aren't going to do that here. And, you know, we had some tough guys. We had some rough guys. We had guys that were used to being coached like that. And it did take them a while to adjust. And it did take them a while to figure out when I was mad. But once they got it, uh, they, they were fine. And we played as hard as anybody. So you never got mad when you were coaching? I got mad all the time. I just didn't raise my voice and curse. <laughs> when me and Ernie were having this conversation, I think you need a combination of both. I don't think you can be flatlined all the time. I think there's times that you have to, like, let them know, like, no, this is unacceptable. But I play for coach who yell all the time, and at a certain point, you just turn it off. Yeah. Yeah. So I, that's the point I was trying to make, Ernie. Like, there is a happy medium. There is. And, Charles, I could go to a player and walk up to them and say, you know what, that was terrible. And if you ever do that again like that, you will never get back on this field. In that tone of voice, that way, and they understood. <laughs> How long have you been retired? Twelve years. For the first probably five to ten years, your name came up every single year for every job why did you not take a job and, and number two did you ever come close to taking a job i left when i was 53 i had coached 28 years at that time so i felt like i had a great career my last seven years were in indianapolis we had a hall of fame quarterback we had great team had a great owner it was a perfect situation but i just felt like the lord had some different things for me i wanted to do something different and it was time for me to go and i never looked back I did get asked quite a bit those first seven or eight years, uh, and I never never came close except for one time. Uh, Martin Mayhew was the general manager at Detroit. I grew up in the Detroit area. That was my home area, my, my dad's favorite team. And I said, Martin, if I was a little younger and if my dad was still alive, I would think about this. And he said, well, think about it just overnight. So I told him I would, and uh, then I called him back the next day and said no. But that was the only one I was ever really even close to, to thinking about. Let me ask you about this weekend. Who you got? You know, you probably have to take the home teams, but I, I'll tell you why Kansas City and Green Bay just can't relax and think they're going to float into it. Number one, people don't go up to Green Bay and win very often because they don't think they can. They think, oh, it's going to be cold, and they've got this history in Lambeau Field and all that. The Bucks and I live here in Tampa, they believe they can win because of Tom Brady. So they're going up there with a great belief that they can win. They're not defeated before they go. So I think it's going to be a great game. Green Bay is tough. Aaron Rodgers is playing at an, another level. Uh, th these Bucks are going to have to go up there, and it is going to be cold and, and windy and blustery. So it, it's it's going to be tough. I think it's going to be a close game, but I'd, I'd have to lean towards the home team. Kansas City's playing great, but Buffalo is as hot as anybody. Uh, I think they can match points with them. 
people always go into Kansas City. What do you have to do to stop Mahomes? And how can we stop Mahomes? The key is you aren't going to stop. The only team that's beaten them this year scored 40 points. So you've got to go in thinking you can score points. Buffalo can do that. And they can give them some problems with their passing game and maybe match them point for point. So I think it's going to be two close games, but I would favor the home teams by a little bit. When you look at Kansas City's offense, it's scary. Two terrific running backs, even though one of them's a little banged up right now. You got Travis Kelsey, to me, he looked like he's the only guy I've seen all year, him and Tariq Hill. Like, they're unguardable. How would you prepare against Kansas City? Well, that's what you would try to do and say, you know what, I'm going to play very conservative, make them have 10 or 12 play drives and see if they make a mistake, see if they get bored along the way and try to just do something crazy. And maybe I can get a tip ball interception or maybe they fumble it. Uh, That's what Buffalo did the first time. Buffalo played in a deep shell and said, hey, I'll just let them throw short passes and run. They'll get tired of that and they'll get bored. Uh, They stayed with it and, and, and won the game. Kansas City did. But uh, it's such a tough matchup. There's nobody in the league, I, I believe you, you're right when you say nobody can really guard Kelsey. Nobody's big enough and strong enough and quick enough to do it. Tyreek Hill, one-on-one coverage, he's going to run away from anybody. So you have these two mismatches that once you start tipping your defense to those two guys, then the other guys become super effective. So it, it's really difficult. You have to catch them on a off day or you have to outscore them. Did you watch the national championship game? I did, yes. Listen, I'm just a fan. I never want to be one of those idiots who get on TV and act like he know what's going on. But I got to ask you this. How can they let one guy catch 13 balls and a half? Ain't there something they can – can they double team him? I mean, first of all, he's a terrific player, deserve a Heisman. But I'm sitting at home saying, how can you let one guy catch 13 balls in one half? It's hard because uh, they've got great running backs and they've got a great tight end and they've got other guys. And so you say, well, if I put too much emphasis on stopping this one guy, then these other guys are going to go crazy. So I, I can't just overload him. But then after he catches seven or eight or nine, you say, gosh, maybe I better change my philosophy <laughs> a little bit. But it's so hard because they have so many other people. How many seasons did you go against Tom Brady? Uh, the first time I played against Tom Brady was 2003, and then we played every year from there through 2008, which was my last year. So I think we played him about eight times altogether, and he was tremendous. But you know the crazy thing, Ernie? I think he's playing better now than when, when I retired. I found it interesting that you were, uh, I guess you were talking to Shannon Sharp and and ranking quarterbacks, toughest quarterbacks you faced, and he didn't make your top five. He was number six, and you kind of listed out the other guys who beat him out there, and he kind of tried to fire back, but it was kind of a misplaced, you know, shot of Indianapolis after you were gone. But what is the difficulty in trying to do that and in trying to look at players from this time period and onto this time period and comparing their skills and and what they bring to the table. Because I know you had Aaron Rodgers and you had Peyton at the top of your list, right? Yeah, well, actually, what Shannon was referring to was something that came out about four years ago. (laughs) And, uh, you know, he was referring back to that. But I said at the time that I did it, you can't compare guys and say this guy's better than that guy. You know, you can't say Shaq is better than Bill Russell because you'll never know. It's just, you can't compare eras. You can't compare guys in different systems. So I said, we can't do that. I can't give you a ranking of who was the best. 
but I can tell you who was the most difficult to prepare against. And I put John Elway really at the top because John Elway, to me, we could do everything right, just like with Patrick Mahomes today. You cover all the receivers, get in the coverage where nobody's open, and John Elway could take off and run for 30 yards. Or he could scramble around for eight seconds until somebody got open and then hit them. So to me, those guys were always more difficult to defend. Uh, and that's the way I kind of posed it. So I had Tom Brady very, very high the list of the non-mobile quarterbacks. But to me, uh, the John Elway, Aaron Rodgers, Steve Young, that second dimension was tougher to prepare for. Okay, so there's been this great thing uh, with the black quarterback. You know, 10, 15 years ago, uh, you know, they scramble too much. They don't stay in the pocket. Now, being a black quarterback, guys are just uh, awesome and amazing. Uh, has that been fun for you to watch that, uh, the way it came on? It really has, Charles. I came up in the, in the mid-70s. I was in college. And there were guys in the 60s and 70s who could have been Russell Wilson and Deshaun Watson and Robert Griffin, and they didn't get the opportunity some guys that did fabulous things. Uh, 1976 was uh, my senior year in college. I played a game. I was quarterback in the University of Minnesota. We played the University of Washington. Warren Moon was uh, quarterbacking them. I was leading the Big Ten in passing. Warren was leading the Pac-10 in passing. We had a shootout. They beat us. Neither one of us got drafted. They told me my skill set didn't fit the NFL. I needed to change positions to be a defensive back. They told Warren his skill set didn't fit the NFL. He needed to go to Canada. He wanted to be a quarterback, so he went to Canada, won five great cups, set all kinds of records, and came back. But it's crazy to think 30 years ago, people saw that and said, well, these guys, we can't use them in the NFL because they don't fit what we do. What they've done now is say, Russell Wilson, I'm going to fit my system to you. I'm going to let you do what you do. Deshaun Watson, I'm going to fit my system to you. And we see this fantastic stuff. And it's great. And that's what I tell people, even as we go back to this head coaching thing. What if we kept ourselves in a box and we said, no, we don't want Deshaun Watson. We don't want Russell Wilson. We don't want Patrick Mahomes. Think about what we would be missing. And the game wouldn't be as good. Well, now when we do the same thing and say, well, I, you know, I'm going to disregard these African-American coaches over here because they don't fit exactly what I'm looking for. We may be missing something that would take the game to another level that, that we don't even realize. He's in the uh, Hall of Fame. He's uh, the 2007 coach of the Colts who won the Super Bowl that year and uh, an all-world guy off the field. It's Tony Dungy. Man, we appreciate you spending time with us. Tony, thank you so much. Good to be with you guys. Always fun. And appreciate what you guys do. Coach, uh, number one, I just want to thank you for getting back to me, man. Uh, I thought it was really important to talk about, because uh, it's frustrating, the lack of black coaches. And I wanted you to, you to talk about it. So thank you for taking the time. Hey, listen, uh, and you, you did return my text. So if you need anything, <laughs> if you need any help charity-wise, you need anything, just let me know. Thank you, Charles. And I'd like to say one last thing about this. We, we keep hearing that the pipeline isn't there, that we need more people in the pipeline. There are plenty of African-American coaches ready to go in this pipeline. We've got to do something to unearth them and recognize them and give them an opportunity. Can I get an amen? Amen. <laughs> Thanks, Tony. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Coach. 
Welcome back to the Steam Room. Another special guest. Another special guest. Kyle Corver uh, joining us. Kyle, uh, who's into the TV business uh, a bit now on TNT, and you've seen him working with Carrie Champion. How are you enjoying the, the TV life here? That was my first time. Nothing like your first live episode being Race in America, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I was just a little nervous, but uh, no, Carrie and Bakari are amazing. And I would say it is not as easy as you guys make it look, um, but it was a good first experience. And, and uh, yeah, looking forward to doing it again tonight. So I asked you last week when I saw you, are you retired? That's what my wife asked me almost every day. <laughs> she's sick of you? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Like, for a long time, she's like, man, you're never home like a single mom. And now I'm home all the time. She's like, you got somewhere you got to be? It's this whole, <laughs> like, adjustment period. But, you know, I, I haven't signed any paperwork yet. But the NBA ran it back. Like that, that, the second season after the bubble, that next season came came pretty quick. And yeah. I'm watching what these guys are going through as they try to keep the games going, uh, the testing, the protocols, bubble on the road, bubble at home. And I'm like, I don't know if I want to do that or not. I'm not sure. So we'll see. You're approaching your 40th birthday, correct? Um, that'll be your next one. I mean, are you still get, are you getting up shots and sitting by the phone at all? Uh, I'm staying in shape. But that's just lifestyle. I don't know. There's certainly... I feel like I've shot baskets for a long time and it's uh, it's been really good to reflect on everything that basketball has done for me and in me. And, you know, I don't know, man, it's, it's, it's a hard, like Chuck, you can probably talk to this better, but like you've actually made that decision. It's hard to finally say like, this is it. Like you always think it's going to be easy. It's a hard choice to be like, this is it. First of all, it's the hardest decision you're ever going to make. But listen, I personally tell you this, uh, number one, the last thing go is your shooting. The last thing. I mean, so if listen, if you come out there and just shoot that thing, man, stay. Because ain't nothing like it. I tell people there's nothing like being in a big game, the way you make people happy. Like, you can be having a bad day in, in some city, but if your team is winning, like, if people come up to you like, hey, I was having a tough day and I got a divorce, I broke up with my girlfriend, but the Cavaliers or the Hawks or the Sixers or the Suns are winning, man, you bring so much joy to people. Yeah. If that phone rang, man, yeah, you take that call. I mean, because you know that you played in a million big games. Let me ask you a question. Number one, you've had an amazing career. But when did you think that, like, I can play in the NBA? I think when you're young, you always think that there's like this belief in yourself and this love for the game. And this is where you see yourself. I think um, I believed that until I started doing the pre-draft workouts and, <laughs> and uh, in all my pre-draft workouts, they would, I was matched up with Dwayne Wade and Dante Jones and whoever was the most athletic guy in the draft. Like they wanted to see if I could guard him. Right. And we're doing one-on-one -on -one drills the whole time. So I was like, I don't know if this is going to happen. I was picked during the last commercial break of the draft. And it was the 51st pick. I was picked during the actual, the last commercial break. Got to pay the bills, man. Sorry. Hey, you know, and um, <laughs> still, I, I was excited. I probably still didn't fully believe in myself until Allen Iverson believed in me, you know. And when he, like, said, hey, man, you got this. And I'm with you and I'm looking for you. Like, Allen Iverson breathing that into me was the biggest deal for me in my career. Like, you know, like, I mean, Chuck, like, the biggest thing for young guys is, like, knowing you belong, 
having the confidence to keep going, to keep on grinding. And like, and he was that person for me. And so, uh, you know, when did I believe? I mean, I always thought until I was right there and I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but, but he was, he was a really significant part of my journey. How did Alan actually say it though? Because I understand you, you got a pretty good AI impersonation. Oh yeah. Well, you know, I mean, if if he he didn't think that you were going to make it and he was like, why would I pass it to you? Like, I'll just shoot it. (laughs) I was like the only guy on the team at that point who was kind of known for shooting. So he was just like, you be ready. You be ready. I'm looking for you. And, um, and so that was, that, that, that was a big part of my story. You know, when you get to the point where you are such a great shooter, they're like, don't leave that guy. That has to be like the ultimate sign of respect. Cause I've been in the locker room. And the coach put names up there. He's like, don't leave that guy right there. No matter what, don't help at all. When did you realize, like, these guys respect the hell out of me out here. They ain't not leaving me at all. No, it's probably a bit of a bit of a journey with that. But I think there is. It's always funny, you know, when you make a shot during the game and one of the assistant coaches stands up and be like, man, that's all he wants to do. Why did you leave him? <laughs> Every game, right? And, uh. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is. It's a it's a sign of respect and, and um, it's, it's, a, it's a badge of honor for sure. What is it like being a, a white player in a predominantly black league and how much did that impact you? How did you feel about that? Did you ever make a big thing about it? Did it ever make you feel uncomfortable? You know, I've got a, a unique story and just that I was I've been in the minority and then the majority, literally back and forth every single time that I've moved. So and I've moved a lot. I started off in Paramount, California. I lived there until I was 12. And me and my family, we were some of the some of the minorities in the city. And then I moved to a town of 10,000 white people. Right. In, in Iowa. And then I went to Creighton, was back at some diversity. My my rookie year in Philly, I was the only white guy on the team. And then I got traded to Utah. And so I was in Salt Lake, which is, you know, it's a white city. And I went yeah. to Chicago and Atlanta, right, where diversity and, and, and these conversations are happening a lot. And then I go back uh, to Cleveland and I watch LeBron really speak up in this space and be, me being like, hmm, I don't know if I really speak up that much about things like this. And then I go back to Utah and now I'm in Milwaukee, which some people say is the most segregated city in America today. Right. So it's just a unique story in that I go back and forth and. Because of that, like you would think that um, I would have understood a bit more, right? Like I always felt like, like I probably don't understand everything, but I probably I think I probably understand a good bit. I'm I'm certainly not part of any problem, right? But then it really was when I was in Atlanta, um, and, and and when I was there, there was a lot of things happening in the country and and in our team, and I began to realize, you know what? I don't think I, I listen to people have Black Lives Matter conversation for the first time. And I'm I'm having two separate conversations with my white friends and my black friends. And I'm fine. Like, you know what? I think I, I don't think I know what I know. And I think I, if I want to be an actual friend, like an actual teammate, I have some work that I have to do. And that, I think that was the beginning for me. And that I mean, I mean, I'd like to say that I've always just been with the movement, but I think as a white man, how you help right now is by understanding where you haven't been, where you've been complicit, understanding our place in history and our place in society and and, and what we've actually been a part of and confessing that, right? And then once you've done that, then you can start to go to work 
and try to be about progress. And so, I mean, it's been, I don't know how many years that's been for me now, but I think regardless, 2020 has been a year for every white American to understand a whole lot of things for the first time. No doubt. Right? No matter where you feel like you've been on this journey, we have learned and our eyes have been opened in ways that we never knew before. And it's been quite a year. You know, the, the interesting thing about sports, it kind of makes you colorblind to a certain degree. Yeah. Because... Number one, as a, as a famous black person, I don't get treated like regular black folk at all. I mean, I get special privileges that most black folks don't get. And so I have to be really cognizant of like, yo, man, you need to open your eyes and pay attention. And then when you play sports with white guys, you don't even look at them as white. Mm -hmm. They're just your teammates. Uh, my best friend from high school is a guy named Pep Mark. I love him like a brother. And he's been an amazing friend. But I remember the first time his family invited to me to his house. And I told my mom, I said, Mom, Pep, family invited me to the house. I'm going to go over there. She says, well, you know they live on the white side of town. And I'm like, Mom, I have no idea what you're talking about. She says, do you want to go? And I said, yeah. I said, me and Pep are cool. And she was like, okay, if you're comfortable. And I remember saying, Mom, I don't want to live like y'all live. This stuff has been going on for so long. Until y'all get y'all stuff together, uh, and I remember that that conversation. And like, and I, I always tell Pep and his family, I want to thank them for inviting me to open up my heart mm. to like, hey, I want to be friends with white people. Uh, I don't want to be like, no, y'all stay on y'all side of town because we gonna have to work together to make this thing work. There's a lot of people who want to just see everyone as equal right now and be like, I see you as a man. I see you as a woman. Let's just keep on living. But I think the thing that most white people aren't taking into account is our history. And a lot of that's because we haven't really been taught what it really was. And we don't take account the story of black Americans, right? Like the actual story and, and, and the hardships that they've had to go through. And so it, you, you can't just say, let's be cool right now. Let's just keep on going. Like we have to acknowledge what has happened and we have to acknowledge the white supremacy that is laced within every institution and system in our country. And, and that's, that's a hard thing for white people to grapple with, but it's, it's like I said, it's a really important part of this story. If we want to move forward. You and I have something in common, just in terms of having a shared experience of delivering a commencement address. I did that at the university of Georgia in 17. And I know you did it at Creighton in 19 and you were not afraid to talk about white privilege. Uh, in that setting, in the in the span of a 25-minute address to these students. And I think it's been your openness, Kyle, and I think you were so transparent over the last year or so uh, with your Milwaukee teammates, like George Hill, uh, who was so uh, devastated by the Kenosha shooting, brought tears to your eyes. Mm. Take me back through that um, when you're in the bubble and you're you know, you're at this distance where nobody can do anything about what they're seeing, can't go there. Take me through that, that episode, that, that point in time. Most guys didn't really want to go to the bubble. Like there was a responsibility to kind of keep it going. I think there's probably only a few teams that really thought they had a chance to win a championship. The reason everyone went to the bubble was to make a stand and to use the platform the microphones and the opportunities that we had to, to speak for justice and equality. That was the reason most guys went there in the first place. And so then while we were there, you know, the Jacob Blake shooting, 
uh, the young white kid afterwards who's shooting the streets. Like this stuff is just like rocking our team. And we're right there. Like Kenosha is a, I don't know, 30 or 45 minute drive from Milwaukee. And, you know, we're really taking this in. We got, we got coaches with, with black sons who are, man, they're walking the streets. They're doing life there. And, and this is a very real thing, a very scary thing. And there were a lot of players. It wasn't just the Bucks who, who were ready to sit out. You know, I think someone just had to do it first. And, and uh, for whatever reason, that was George. That was Sterling Brown. And then in that moment, there wasn't time to dialogue and to talk this out and to, you know, it's just like there's 12 minutes on the clock. You in or you out. And in that moment, because there wasn't all this time to dialogue, it's like, no, what's the right thing to do right now? And we've all felt in that moment the right thing to do right then was to not play. And we had no idea how it was going to trickle down. We had no idea that Orlando was going to do what they did and the rest of the NBA was going to do what they did and other sports leagues were going to do what they did. Like, we had no idea. But in that moment, we feel like that was the right thing to do. It was a heavy uh, locker room, you know. Um, it's just a bunch of guys trying to do their best, and, and uh, that's how it played out. I just want to say thank you. I mean, because we need people who want to be aligned with us because we need help. I mean, it's been a rough year. And I just want to thank you for being one of the soldiers who stood up even when Ernie said it earlier, these conversations are not comfortable at all. And it takes a special person, especially somebody like you who is successful. I mean, because when you're successful, you are risking something. I see it's easy for somebody ain't got nothing to say something because they ain't got nothing to lose. But when you are successful and people like you, and for you to stand up, because number one, when you retire, you're, gonna, it's, you're a pretty man. You're going to be on TV somewhere. I guarantee you that. Like, we need some – we got too many ugly white guys on television. Speaking of ugly white guys, I'm working with Ernie. We need some pretty white men on television. So uh, thank you for being a, uh, being a partner with the brothers, man. It's the opportunity for all of us right now, right? This is uh, a human rights issue. There, there's room for all of us in, in this conversation, and uh, there's room for our feet, and um, we, need, we need more of us to, to step in. We're going to lighten the mood here just a bit as we wrap up with Kyle Corver by bringing in the legendary producer of a uh, longtime producer of Inside the NBA. Legendary. <laughs> Tim Kiley joins the proceedings now. Another ugly white guy, Kyle. See, uh, Chuckster, <laughs> Kyle did a, an AMA. You know what that is? A what now? An AMA. No, I don't know what that is. An Ask Me Anything session oh lord come on chuck and so now uh we have a series of questions which tk is going to ask you chuckster and you have to tell us if this is true or false about kyle corbin okay is it have, have i set the table there correctly tk yes you have ernie and kyle just before i start i want to tell you you are doing fantastic on the arena it's great great job and um at any point i can help you hey, although hey, charles hey, is rolling hey, his hey, eyes kyle. now don't fall for the uh, banana in the tailpipe. Tell them to start paying you to come on TV, man. <laughs> hey, 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 don't fall for those, hey, all those kind words. Tell them, hey, listen, I want to be paid for coming on television. <laughs> That's the yes. second piece of advice. All right, Chuck, you ready? Yes. Kyle once was traded for a copy machine. Do you believe that? Yes. Yeah, I was I was drafted uh, the, during that last commercial break, and um, I was I was basically bought. The, the pick was bought for I don't know a little bit of money. 
I'm from uh, Philly bought it from New Jersey. And with that money, I was told that New Jersey uh, paid for their summer league team. And with the leftover money, they bought a copy machine. Yeah, that's, that was, that was my trade value. Color or black and white copies. <laughs> All right, Chuck, Kyle was once hazed by Chris Weber. At the end of practice, C. Webb would bring a ball rack to center court and punt balls all over the gym, making Kyle Oh, yes, definitely. Him. Yes or yes. So it's actually not true because that was my second year. I was no longer a rookie. Um, but I remember him saying that half court and just punting the balls. <laughs> it doesn't happen anymore in the NBA, Chuck. The world has changed. <laughs> I actually believe in hazing personally. Come on, Chuck. <laughs> Not crazy <laughs> stuff. Well. As long as it's fun, right? It's like, yeah, uh, listen, fun. let me tell you something. Carrying the guy's luggage to the airport, I think that's important. Me having to take Dr. J a newspaper every morning. I had to do that. Me having to take Andrew Tony warm, a warm cup of coffee before he went to bed. I think all that stuff is good fun. Like some, I hear some of these crazy hazing stories. Those are way off the charts. But I'm a firm believer when you get to the NBA or any sport, they should do some fun hazing. I truly believe that. What a a terrible way to get a good night's sleep. You're taking somebody a cup of coffee before bed? No. First of all, let me tell you something. Andrew (laughs) Tony. No, Andrew Tony (laughs) is the strongest player I played against. He used to do a thousand push-ups, a thousand sit-ups, drink a cup of coffee, and slept like a baby. Yeah, small world. The coffee gave him the energy to do a thousand push-ups and sit-ups, and then he went to bed right after that. Wow. All right, Chuck. Kyle was once fined ten thousand dollars by the league because his shorts were too long. Oh yeah, for sure. I've seen those ugly long shorts. I believe that's true. Uh, it was it was the year when when uh, they said all of a sudden your shorts had to be above your knee. They had the dress code, all of that, right? And the first game, three people got fined on our team. Me. Allen Iverson and Kevin Ollie, of all people, <laughs> our shorts were too long. I was like, come on, man. <laughs> like, come on. This is what they gave me. That should have been rescinded. Should have been. Yeah. Scotty Rigo should pay that fine, Chuck. Yes, you Scotty Rigo. <laughs> Shout out to him and Allen Lumpkin. <laughs> you know what you should have done, Kyle? I said, look, I don't have the 10K right now, but uh, do you need a copy machine? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chuckster, last one. Kyle has a giant tattoo of an eagle somewhere on his body, and it earned him the nickname the White Eagle. Kyle's not a tattoo guy. I'm going to say no. I got one. I got one on my side. And, uh, you know, Channing Fry, just, he's just searching for nicknames when you come on his team. And he, he had, like, <laughs> four or five crazy ones, and one of them stuck for, like, a week. <laughs> but I do on my side. Okay. Chuck, you did well for a game show. What's AMA again, Chuck? Uh, Ask me anything. There you go. (laughs) Al, you're doing great. I hope you're enjoying yourself on the arena. We're enjoying watching you. And yeah, make sure you get paid. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And and we'll see. Maybe we'll see you on the floor here one of these days, man. All right. Somebody always needs somebody to knock down the three. Hey, why don't you go on up to Brooklyn? They need another. Oh, sorry. Bad example. (laughs) (laughs) you're a good sport man i appreciate you kyle great talking to you hey guys we'll see you later all right see you tonight how about that tk beautiful (laughs) see you later boys all right t thank you cap thanks ernie thanks chuck you got it kid chuck and ernie in steam room come and join us in steam
Chuck and Ernie in the steam room. Leave your towel on in the steam room. Man, it's been a fun day to have Kyle Korver and uh, Tony Dungy on and just good conversation, good guys. Man, it's uh, it's been fun. And uh, we wrap up the steam room. If you're if you're new to the program, if you're not a loyal steamer yet, and there's still time, you know, all you got to do is subscribe to the podcast, uh, wherever you get your podcast. Uh, we always go old school to wrap things up um, with Chuck's answering machine. Let's hear it. You've reached Charles Barkley. Leave a message, America. Charles, Ernie, Happy New Year. It's Stav, your Australian correspondent and always loyal steamer. Let me kick off by saying I'm loving season two, but I'm truly sorry I haven't been able to get you beer just yet. Unfortunately, the US legislation is pretty restrictive about sending booze to your shores. So I'll put the call out right now to any Atlanta brewery or venue that has the relevant importing and alcohol licenses to receive beer on behalf of Chuck and EJ. I'd be super grateful if you can assist as you'd be helping me keep a promise to the fellas. You can reach me via info at hawksbrewing.com. That's H-A-W-K-E-S for Hawks. Now, I want to shout out the loyal steamer from last week, Declan, who took inspiration from Charles' SNL experiences to write his essay and college application for Northwestern. Get in. Being open to new ideas is so important, and Declan, you clearly took inspiration from a unique source that no other candidate did, which I'm sure made you stand out from the crowd. Well done, mate. Speaking of open to new ideas, Chuck, you said you were determined to make 2021 a better year. I'm curious if you've given any thought to how exactly you're going to make things better for you and others around you this year. How are you going to take 2021 into your own hands? And EJ, if you've got any bright ideas on this subject, please speak on it too. Sending good vibes from down under, Stav. Man, you know what? Every time he calls, he brings something great to the table and and just has like this infectious feel-good vibe that he gives off as he calls us from Australia. So, staff, thank you so much. Chuckster, take a look at that question and how are you going to do it in 2021? Well, number one, man, I just want to thank him for being a law steamer. You know, Ernie, and I hate to say it and be redundant, but man, I'm having so much fun doing the podcast. No doubt. And when you just get a call, it just brightens your heart. And, um, you know, for me, Ernie, uh, number one, I'm so excited for my baby girl. <laughs> you know, she's getting married uh, March the 6th, and that's the only thing on my plate right now. I've got to keep getting in better physical shape because apparently they're supposed to try to pick me up in a chair. And I told them I'm going to need all hands on deck. They're going to try to pick my fat ass up. Ooh, baby. I know. That's a daunting task. Daunting test. Uh, so number one, uh, I got to get stop. I got to get uh, in better physical shape. I'm not getting any younger, but I think I just want to be a more positive person because as a person who's been very blessed to make money, have a great life, this pandemic has only just been an inconvenience to me. And I just want to make sure that I keep a positive attitude at all times because, man, there's a lot of people who died from this virus, a lot of people. And there's so many people who have lost their jobs, their businesses. I want to make sure that I just be, uh, anybody who walks up to me, I'm in a good mood. I'm not going to complain about my cable not working. I'm not going to complain if I had a flat tire. That's my number one thing this year, man, because there's so many people out here hurting. So I just want to be sensitive to these people 
and just be a good spirit. I mean, I just want to be a good spirit. As I answer that question, Stav, it's, um, this goes back to something that I've, that I wrote about in my book, Unscripted, uh, and something that is really near and dear to everybody in our family. And it goes back to something that happened to me when I was eight, nine years old playing in a little league game. And we had a game delayed because two of our outfielders jumped over the fence to look for a ball. And then they gave up looking for the ball because they found themselves in, in the middle of a blackberry bramble and they were just sitting there eating blackberries. And those came to be called blackberry moments. And to, and to put it really succinctly, it's just don't be so caught up in the game that you miss the blackberries that are around you, the sweet moments that are there. And just don't lose sight, even in the, in the times that are most difficult, that there are some there are some wonderful things out there that you can notice. And there, and there are certainly opportunities where you can make somebody's day with just the smallest gesture. Yes. I mean, if you, you know, yes. just buying somebody a cup of coffee when you're filling up your gas tank or just giving somebody five minutes of your time, even though they didn't ask, but you can tell, you know, something's bugging them, but you, sometimes you get so caught up with what you've got going on with your game that you, that you don't step away. Um, and you can provide those Blackberry moments for somebody and shoot the other day, just, just hanging out with my grandkids and taking pictures of them on the swings and that kind of thing. And, and then sending those to my daughter and just, you know, making her day in the middle of a, of, you know, teaching high school at a difficult time. So wake up in the morning and say, how can I make somebody's day better today? And you know what, Chuckster, if you do that, if you have, if you have a, a country full of folks yeah. saying, I want to make somebody's day better today, man, that's a, yeah. I think, I just think that that's a, that's a start. And, and Chuckster, I'm with you on, on yours too. It's just like, you know, realize how good we've got it sometimes. Yes. Great being with you as always. Uh, I look forward to it every week, Chuckster. Look forward to it too, brother. Appreciate you keeping your towel on today um, as always. And appreciate Tony Dungy and Kyle Corver for taking time with us. And and the legendary Tim Kiley, of course. <laughs> legendary. I'll see you on TV, Chuckster. I'll see you on TV. All right. Y'all have a great week. Thanks for jumping into the steam room with us. We'll see you again next week. <laughs>